Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. We are, yay, we're live at Wonkfest and we are talking general elections, strike actions and all that went on at Wonkfest. It's all coming up. If the general election in 2015, the EU referendum in 2016, the local elections in 2016, the general election in 2017, the local elections in 2018, the European elections in 2019, the local elections in 2019 (laughs) weren't enough for you, we have a general election uh, later this year. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and we are live at Wonkfest and here to hang the lanyard over the neck of higher education policy, we have four superb guests. We have Director of Education at Public Firth, Jonathan, Jonathan Simons. Jonathan, your highlight of the, of the festival, please. So I think it was actually, as someone who works in politics, uh, it was the absence of the politician. I thought that really, that really made it. Uh, and in particular, you know, love him as I do, rather than hearing another stump speech from Chris Skidmore, I thought the crowds, the crowdfunding and the crowd uh, sourcing of the manifesto was brilliant. And for those listeners who didn't manage to make it to Wonkfest, uh, unfortunately the minister could not make it, so we all wrote the Wonky Manifesto, which you can catch on wonky.com. It's well worth a look at. And we have... Uh, to my right, but that doesn't matter if you're listening. Director of Higher Education Policy Institute, Mary Kernick-Cook. Mary, give me your highlight of the festival, please. Oh, well, mine was in that, that very first session, which was something like, has Britain blown it? And it was a really depressing session. And um, Chris Cook was, like, super depressing. <laughs> but the ray of light, I thought, was Sally Mapstone, who's the principal or vice chancellor, whatever she's called at, at St Andrews. And she was talking about the um, importance of higher education, universities being, you know, reinvention and rediscovery. And actually, there was a show of hands. And I promise you, I was one of about four people who put their hands up to say they were optimistic about the future. Now, I am a very optimistic person, but I was really quite shocked by how depressed everyone is. And I think it's about time we kind of got over it and got on with it. Sally was absolutely right. It's for us to take a lead and make the best out of this mess. Thank you. Well said. Well said. Thank you for that, Mary. And making her podcast debut, Managing Director at Online Education Services, Andrea Burroughs. Andrea, your highlight of the week, please. Thank you. Um, oh, lots to choose from. Um, I think uh, I actually would agree with uh, Mary. Um, the majority of hands yesterday when we were asked to vote uh, showed a pretty pessimistic view on the immediate future. And KPMG's James Stewart's view was that uncertainty was here to stay. But you're right, Sally Matston said universities stand for optimism. Um, and that was really one of my highlights, that even with the social political turbulence, that the main thread of purpose of this sector, of this body of people, has transformed the lives of traditional and non-traditional students through lifelong learning. And that has to be a good thing. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Andrea. And finally, uh, CEO and Editor-in-Chief of Wonky, Mark Leach. Mark, what was your highlight of the festival? 
Well, Rachel, I mean, almost too many to mention. It's been absolutely fantastic, mm-hmm. Monkfest. I've loved every little bit of it. Um, probably, though, I, I, I can't lie, interviewing Nate Silver, um, the final session just now, was pretty cool for, uh, for, for kind of a politics nerd like me. Nate Silver is kind of the top of the wonk tree when it comes to um, policy wonkery and uh, politics. So that was a lot of fun, and he was an absolutely delightful guy. Um, and we'll hear more from him later on the podcast. We will. We, oh, it's, it's all coming up. Right. Uh, well, following on from that, we start this week with, with our, obviously, Wonkfest, our annual policy jamboree, uh, which has just closed here in London. So, Mark, um, tell the listeners, how was it for you? Well, I think this was, uh, without doubt, our, our biggest Wonkfest yet. And um, the, the thing for, that makes Wonkfest for me is uh, the quality of debate we get from um, people from across the community. And... Jonathan mentioned the lack of politicians. We, we did, uh, we actually tried, you know, we invited Chris Goodmore, he was, he was meant to come, we invited MPs, but they're out campaigning for their seats, uh, for a general election. Um, but I don't think Wonkfest was, was poorer for it, actually. Um, every single session, um, that I was in, I saw amazing interaction from, um, <coughs> our guests, uh, people with brilliant questions, um, and really erudite questions that kept everything just feeling fresh and interesting and and actually uh, picking up what um, Andrea and, and Mary were saying, um, also pretty optimistic, I think, as well, about their sector. People are here because they love universities and they, they care about the what happens to them and, and the future uh, of higher education. But I, I, re- I really feel at Wonkfest there is a general sense that the sector is heading in the right direction. We're just all trying to make it a little bit better. And, and that's something we can all agree on. Mm. Um, and that comes across whether you're talking about the role of leadership, it comes across whether you're talking about politics, uh, statistics, whatever it is, um, that shines through. And, and I find that really inspiring. And it, you know, reminds, reminds me yet again, you know, why we, why we go to the trouble of putting Wonkfest on. This is, mm. this is why we do it. And, and, and it's, it only works because, uh, of that fantastic engagement. No, indeed. It's not trouble at all, really. It's not trouble. <laughs> um, Mary, what did, uh, what did you make of it? This, yeah. This year? So, uh, I, well, I did think it was great. I preferred this um, venue just easier to get around and stuff. But do you know what? That literally that last question that I asked of Nate Silver is the one that's really made my heart sore because I'm really worried about this country, mathematics education, and the fact that we've got so many people who do no more, even arithmetic, post-16. And I thought, so what Nate was saying is actually it's the higher education sector in the US that's fixing this. Mary, would you mind just uh, for the listeners mentioning your question? It was a fab question. I completely forgot about that. The question was um, to Nate was in the US, you know, are they good at mathematics? Are they good at data science? And, you know, have they cracked a kind of quantitative skills um, issue? And his response was schools aren't that good at it, but the colleges have really taken it on and they're starting to build it in in a kind of interdisciplinary way. He talked about journalists now doing really good data science and data visualizations and so on. And, uh, and I thought that was a real sense of optimism and something that I think our sector has got to, to jump on. I've been working with some guys at Wolfram Research on a, you know, on a way of um, building a kind of curriculum that would work post-16 and post-18 to address these skills, not maths, you know, like we do at A-level or whatever. So I thought that was really something we should, um, we should build on in the sector and a kind of so needed if anything like the industrial strategy is ever to, to come to bear. <laughs> Indeed. Jonathan, I'll call to you. What did you make of, the, of Wonkfest this year? Uh, well, it's the first time I've been here. Uh, so I was, I was really blown away by it, actually. I thought just the, 
I mean, really, as the others have said, the volume of conversations, but the quality of conversations as well, and actually the, the quality of delegate. Uh, I remember in one of my, uh, you know, famous, uh, famous accuracy of judgments, I remember talking to Mark a few years ago when sort of Wonkfest was a gleam in his eye, uh, and I said, it will never work. Uh, <laughs> I said, I said, or rather, it's a really good idea, but you will never get this many people to come, and that quality of speakers, and the ticket price, and putting it all together, and the logistics there, it's just like, it, it won't work. Uh, and he said, it will work. And uh, the reason that Mark runs a very successful company is that he tends to be right and I tend to be wrong. Uh, and that's certainly the case on this instance. And I mean, really just blown away by, as the people have said, the quality of guests, the quality of discussion, and just the the togetherness of the sector uh, is really quite incredible. And there's someone who spans the whole education system from early years through schools and through through colleges and universities as well. The, the togetherness of the HE community is, is quite something to behold. And it's, it's a real asset. Uh, and you don't see that in all aspects of education policy. The sort of schools community is much more disparate. Uh, and so I think it's a real, uh, it's a real treasured asset. Thank you for that, Jonathan. Jonathan mentioned conversations there. Andrea, you've been with us at the festival for two days. Um, can you give us a flavour of the types of conversation people have been having and any kind of standout themes for you that might have come up? There's been some great um, talks and sessions. Um, and I've had the pleasure of attending many conferences over the course of the year, and this is my favourite. Um, there was um, pretty diverse uh, topics, but I think, yeah, some of my favourites, AI, the rise of robots, I think was great. Um, they were talking about the seventh wave um, uh, in terms of HE catching that, uh, making sure that we were at the forefront there. Uh, learning strategies for a digital world. Um, the data says something different with uh, Mark Corver, who um, challenged the data and said um, that VCs are perhaps underpaid, um, which I thought was uh, was interesting. Um, and I th- but I think actually widening participation was something that came up um, a number of times, the importance of diversity in the student community and the university community, and that came across loud and uh, clear. It was a really inspirational session on parent power, which was about the principles of community organising with Natasha Beverly and Jennifer. They were inspirational, and I really like Paul's observation from King's about university should be um, a family affair. Uh, so, the, yeah, some, some really good things over, over the two days. And actually, perhaps a, a, a final one for me was uh, that... Universities are about the people, the students, the university's team. They're delivering a service, and it's the team that makes up the university body and the attributes that set them apart. So it's probably not lost on most people listening to this that there's a top five place in the rankings for every university, all 162 of them. So I thought the ethics session yesterday uh, touched on this, and I think when universities understand and can articulate what makes them distinctive and which attributes and combination of attributes set them apart, then their marketing can be honest, ethical, and appealing. Uh, are, we allow, are we allowed uh, one more? Yeah. Um, I really liked John Kingham's session mm. as well. Mm. And the bit, the one bit that I really, really liked was when he said, um, uh, we need um, research to be, in, for, for good research, we need to be serious about people as well as money. And he was talking about needing to support early career researchers and actually also referencing back um, to the idea that the kind of pipeline, particularly of, of STEM-type skills coming out of the school system, was something we need to fix because you've got this kind of vicious circle of not enough people coming out, not mm-hmm. enough teachers training to teach the people, and then not enough people going to university and la, la, la. So I thought that was um, uh, a really um, good one. And I also really liked um, the session on TEF. Shirley Pierce, Sue Rigby from Bath mm-hmm. Spa was on fire, I thought. My favourite question on that one was from... Um, Kathy Armour from Birmingham, and she said, excuse me, what's the difference between learning and learning gain? And you could, you could almost 
hear the entire room kind of take a deep <laughs> breath and say, hmm, good question. <laughs> so um, anyway, I really, I thought that was great. There's been, yeah, there's been some fabulous moments. Anything for you, Mark, that any uh, great conversations or kind of key themes that are coming out of the festival for you? Um, I, I think um, what, we're, what I think we've been able to do at Wonkfest is get a real balance between kind of the, the human side of um, higher education and the, uh, I guess, the sort of the under the bonnet look. Um, and a lot of the sessions um, are about kind of big policy questions, um, data, um, the system, government policy, and those sorts of questions. Um, then a lot of them are about what it's what it's like to work in higher education, mm. uh, whether it's a, as a vice chancellor maybe, um, or as Mary says, an early career researcher. Um, and the fact that um, we're able to, I think, have a conversation as a sector that, that kind of basically stays human as well as wonky, um, if you like, um, I find really encouraging and interesting. Um, and, and I think that a lot of sessions, um, though, you know, kind of challenged those, uh, challenged um, the perceptions about that and, and broke down the barriers between them often yeah. in ways that you, you wouldn't expect. Every week, we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Radcliffe, here is the hidden history of HE. So with that medieval curriculum that you did your general arts degree first and then you studied and, um, further to become a, a master so that you went on to teach, it was quite clear that you did that in the general sum of knowledge of mankind in, in, in arts, in, in, in the kind of broader sense of, of what you might know about. What you would then go on and do, if you, if you were interested in this, is study one of the higher faculties. And there were three higher faculties, law, theology and medicine. These are the things that uh, you could only do after you had first taken um, your arts degree. And there's a remnant of that both in, in terms of in the UK, but also in the US. So, for example, at, at Oxford, you now, um, once you've got your MA, uh, you can go on and do a Bachelor in Civil Laws as a postgraduate degree, because that's the beginning stage of, of starting the, the, the work. But the, the most uh, people were aiming for the degree of doctor, and you could only get a degree of the degree of doctor in a higher faculty. There was no, In the UK, there wasn't a tradition of getting a, a higher a doctorate uh, in arts. So slowly these develop um, into uh, um, slightly uh, um, unregulated. Um, the people would come back and do an exercise, submit some work, um, and they would get these higher degrees um, in a lovely red gown. Uh, and that's, that's, that's how those higher degrees went. So when the reforming exercise comes um, in the 19th century, and, and universities are starting to develop different subjects uh, they add to these higher degrees degrees in letters or science and therefore a higher degree starts on that thing and there's also a sense that that prolonged study that you might do after first having done your degree should be rewarded by some kind of doctorate degree it's not really a research degree but it's a kind of way of recognizing people might do that and so there's a sense that we might take uh, the uh, doctor of science degree and make it into a, a research degree but the other tradition, which comes to us um, both directly from Germany but also from the US, is this notion that having done your first general degree, you then specialise. So the Americans, the specialisation in a professional degree comes at the postgraduate level. You don't study undergraduate law, you study it uh, at a uh, postgraduate level. And that's more of a direct inheritor of that medieval course structure. General education first, then specialise in professional education afterwards. But also, they take on the idea that um, a 
doctorate degree in arts might also be something uh, that we might take forward. Now, the German translation, the German way that they would approach that is that they describe their arts faculty as the philosophical faculty. So it's a doctorate in philosophy that the Americans take forward. That idea that you would uh, have a doctorate in philosophy, a doctorate in a specialised area of knowledge that wasn't law, theology or medicine. And so Yale first starts um, with that. Um, and then there's a development um, as Johns Hopkins University to develop a rigorous training towards the PhD. Uh, and that's that set up. Uh, and so if you want to do further study, you can, if you're an American, you can go to all of these research degrees. Generally, if people want to do that further study, they go to uh, a German university um, to take a, a philosophical degree. Now, all of that shifts um, because with the First World War, no one can go to Germany to take a first uh, up one of these degrees. Uh, and so this forces the issue forces the issue in the UK two ways. Firstly, there are Americans who want to come to Europe uh, and do further study, and we don't have anything appropriate for them to do. Uh, and that becomes particularly um, clear in the beginning of the 20th century because Rhodes Scholars have been given large amounts of money to come to the UK, but they really want to do more study, uh, and they want to have a degree to reward them for that. Um, but also because that extra training of scientists is something that they want to get together. So, the UK has a wonderful moment of coherence and organisation uh, and facilitated by the government, and actually also the War Office, organises a conference to set up the philosophy degree, that, that uh, PhD. And the universities all come, all send delegates, and they set out the requirements so that actually, given that we normally, you know, protesting about our autonomy and doing things, we come together and pull so that the PhD sets off in pretty much the same way across all of the UK universities. Uh, and so it, it goes off. Obviously, there are some quirks, um, Oxford calling it a DPhil rather than a PhD, uh, but actually we, we go off in a, in, a, in a relatively straightforward way because we've come together to deal with uh, a market for doing these things, an opportunity to uh, take forward higher learning uh, and a, a chance to seal a thunder on our counterparts in Europe. So there we go, a great development in English higher education. Or British higher education. Next, there is going to be a general election. Yes, the country will take to the polls on Thursday the 12th of December for yet another one. There is talk of the student vote being, a, being critical in some seats and conversely, talk that youth quakes is not actually causing any election tremors at all. Corbyn may be sliding down in popularity with students and Joe Swinson sliding up. Perhaps the famous tuition fee pledge of 2010 has been forgiven and forgotten. Jonathan, why don't you lead us off on this one? Yes, absolutely. So if the general election in 2015, the EU referendum in 2016, the local elections in 2016, the general election in 2017, the local elections in 2018, the European elections in 2019, the local elections in 2019 <laughs> weren't enough for you, we have a general election uh, later this year. Uh, it is entirely possible that in between all of these things, uh, schools will open and church halls will open and not just be used as permanent polling places. Um, <laughs> but we do have uh, a general election. It is our third in five years. And as I said in the session yesterday morning, it doesn't take a million votes to have shifted for us to now be sitting here actually under an Ed Miliband government just about to go to the polls at the end of his uh, first five-year term, or indeed for David Cameron uh, to shortly be finishing his presumably second term, uh, shortly to hand over to presumably George Osborne. Uh, and in both circumstances, I think it's safe to say we would be going to the polls in a less turbulent time than we are now. In terms of um, the student element of it, obviously the debate itself has been uh, hotly contested in Parliament because of the potential impact on the student vote. Are students going to be voting at the university? Are they going to be voting at home? Are they going to be voting at all? Uh, if you're Rod Little, uh, you know, it is interesting that actually 
I think as with many things, this was a, a hugely manufactured row uh, and there was an excellent uh, piece on Wonky, of course, where else that really broke it down and said, you know what, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. There's not a vast amount there. And actually, that is also true in 2017. Uh, for all of the talk of the youth quake, there were certainly some seats that moved because of the student vote. Canterbury is the obvious one. But actually, most seats did not change hands because of youth engagement. Uh, youth vote was slightly up, um, but not massively so, and certainly not to the extent that people thought it was going to be. That doesn't stop both Labour and the Conservatives being obsessed with the 18 to 24 cohort. Mm. Um, you can't move at the moment in political discussions for people talking about the youth vote. Labour are terrified that they're going to lose it because they thought that was what's behind their unexpectedly good performance in 2017. The Tories um, got obliterated amongst that group in 2017, having been reasonably competitive with them in 2015. So from the Tory side, they are thinking about how they can get back some of those voters. Um, and really, that's the context in which, of course, Augur was commissioned. The fact that Labour have committed to free tuition fees. Uh, the Tories felt they needed a response very rapidly commissioned of a political review, uh, which sort of worked backwards and spent two years and God knows how much money in 250 pages to come up with the answer, which, hey, presto, number 10 wanted it to do, which is that the tuition fees should be cut. Uh, of course, then the last step wasn't taken, which is to know whether the government's going to accept it or not. So actually, I would expect for all the sound and fury... I'd expect there to actually be very little about higher education in this campaign. Um, I think that no party is particularly going to talk about student issues, with the exception of Labour's National Education Service. If you know what that means, answers on a postcard or a podcast. Um, I think the Tories <laughs> will essentially just bounce through and say, we will respond to Augur come back and talk to us in six months' time. The Lib Dems, for obvious reasons, will be very silent on the issue of fees. And I think whilst there'll be some sort of warm words around what we can call youth issues, people will talk about housing, they'll talk about climate change, particularly on the Lib Dems and the Labour side. Bluntly, this cohort is actually not that electorally important. Um, depressing as it is to say, there is a reason why almost all electoral attention and almost all state funding goes towards those between 40 and 55. It's because they are the people who vote, they are the people who vote in marginal constituencies, and they are the people who swing elections. So actually, there's a lot of rhetoric put to the sort of 18 to 24 cohort, but not a huge amount of money is spent on them. The Tories lost heavily in 2017, but still formed the government. But the Tories lost every single working age segment of the population in 2017. The only segment they won on was the 65-plus segment. But nevertheless, they, they lost it by a small enough amount to it not actually making a difference in the election. So we've got one coming up, uh, but I would not expect, for those who are desperately holding out hope for whether it's going to talk about Subject level tech, I suspect that might not quite make the manifesto. Imagine if it did make the manifesto. I mean, that would, that would be, that would be as, as the young people say, that would be the banter heuristic. <laughs> Mary, please. Um, I think it's also worth remembering that back in 2010, you know, when the whole tuition fees and the um, Lib Dems breaking their promise and so on, this year's students would have been, what, aged between 9 and 12 or something like that. So it probably wasn't. And unless there were some very young monks around uh, in, in, at that time. It wasn't really in their consciousness. Now, for us, it all feels like yesterday, or at least it does, does to me. Um, but I don't think there's that same kind of consciousness about that as a, as a big political issue. And, I, and, and actually, it'd be interesting to see how much Labour emphasise or de-emphasise their free tuition mm. um, pledge, because it feels like another few years have gone away from it being 
such a kind of hot topic um, for young people, but I don't know what other people think about that. Well, Angela, let's bring you in at the end there. I mean, I'll talk about it from a, a personal point of view mm. um, on a straw poll of, of two. I've, <laughs> I've got three kids, two of them are at university. Um, both have sent in their proxy voting forms. I will be their proxy. They haven't decided who they want to vote for, and it will be a single issue decision for them. Interesting. Thank you for that uh, personal insight. Uh, Mark, do you want to come in on this to the final yeah, I, thought? I think, I think Jonathan's um, analysis is, is probably right. By the time you're listening to this, you, we, we may have had the Tory party manifesto. I think it's due um, imminently, possibly Wednesday this week. Um, I think there isn't, it's, it's clear they're going to um, be some big spending giveaways, that much, that much we know. It's also going to be fairly short and, um, short and tight. I doubt it would ever get into the level of detail of um, subject level TEF. Actually, we joke about that, but the TEF was in the 2015 Tory manifesto, mm-hmm. um, and that surprised uh, some people. But I think this manifesto is probably going to zoom out a bit further. Um, there are some kind of, Things around the org review that I can just imagine getting in there and, and commitments to further education. And there needs to be, uh, because of, um, you know, the Tory party needs to get its, its vote out and its base out. There needs to be your, you know, there needs to be the kind of standard stuff that is a little bit skeptical and hostile about the value of universities. Uh, possibly kind of implies a threat to uh, move some of the, its resources um, from from universities to other parts of the education system, questions uh, whether too many people are going to universities in a kind of subtle way, those sorts of things. I think, you know, those kind of notes that you do kind of have to hit. Um, what would be interesting to see is how they translate those into policy proposals. Um, some could be, you know, some could be sort of interesting things that, that actually, you know, people in the, in the wonky audience might agree with. I mean, further education has been hugely underfunded for a long time. It's not, not controversial to say. Um, but how that relates to higher education fees is a, is a, is a more complicated question and, and, and obviously a lot trickier for, for universities. But I wouldn't be surprised, uh, just a bit of a prediction, I wouldn't be surprised to see something that's a bit more labour, actually, in the Tory manifesto. So, okay, tuition, free tuition is a bit of a red herring. It's a Jeremy Corbyn big pledge. You know, whether or not it wins many extra seats, who knows, probably not, as you say, because of the youthquake thing not being not being so massive um but i can i can imagine some land grab you know tanks on lawn stuff like um focus on cost of living and maintenance mm. um or things that do do you know give a uh, a good offer to teachers uh, and doctors and, yeah. and, and and kind of public public service professionals um you know the wonky crowdsource manifesto actually yeah. that was yeah. the number one thing it was mm. free tuition for um for, for docs and teachers. Actually, I'd, 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 I'd sooner see that this year in the Tory manifesto than I would the Labour one. Because the Labour's approach at the moment to, to HE policy is this very kind of, kind of crude, um, abolished tuition fees. Gives the Tory party actually lots of space to do interesting things and, as I say, grab a bit of, um, grab a bit of Labour territory at the same time. I think, I think that's absolutely right. I think the other two, the two instances which might in normal times have made this a really interesting manifesto is that the Tory party is travelling ideologically light at the moment. It does not have a kind of, uh, governing ideology, leaving alone Brexit for a second. If you talk about what does this Conservative Party talk about for domestic policy, actually there is no guiding principle. You know, Mayism to an extent existed, Cameronism sort of existed in the early days, Thatcherism obviously existed very heavily. There is no such thing as Johnsonism, and, and never is there going to be. The other thing is that the Tory party is willing slash forced to turn on the spending taps, much to the kind of displeasure of the Treasury. Actually, the spending review that was announced in November, which passed by with almost zero uh, interest, uh, actually 
predicted quite a lot of spending increases. Only for the next year, they're going to have to do a proper spending review, whoever gets back in, and whoever it does get back in is going to be spending a lot of additional money. Now, both of those things are potentially quite interesting for universities. However, I worry that purely from a sort of selfish HE perspective, given that it is very unlikely that we're going to have a government with a massive majority in any party, and given that their overwhelming political driver will continue to be Brexit, I rather suspect the Treasury institutional caution will turn some of those taps partially off. So the risk for the university sector is that actually the Treasury is bounced into a fee cut by the manifesto and then flat, uh, basically refuses to pay the difference. And then we are into a world of, uh, of potentially a real squeeze down on university resources. So actually, that's the worst case scenario for the sector here. Now it's time for yes, but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question, in real life, it's Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Thank you very much for that enthusiastic introduction. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that brings the signal and the noise. Some underappreciated data for you this week. Last year, the Sutton Trust published data collected by Michael Donnelly and Sol Gamsu, showing the percentage of students who commute a short distance to their university from their home address by a provider. I plotted this against the KPI on the percentage of students at each provider from low participation backgrounds. It's the most recent year of data for each, and the plot is for England Lonely. So, are providers that are widening access to HE recruiting students who live locally? Does it correlate? Before we go to the panel, let's go to Nate Silver, who will give his take. So, it's the number of students who commute a short distance to... Yeah? I would, as an American, I would think they would correlate for sure um, because I don't know if you have this notion in the UK or not in the US we have the notion of community colleges or commuter colleges which are places that often serve um, yeah. students that are, are lower to middle income students from families that historically have not had family members attending college and that often involve people commuting rather than staying on campus yeah, I, I'd have to say yes, although I, knowing DK, he's bound to have <laughs> thought of it because that's the obvious answer. But, it's a deep but everything, But everything I kind of know about students and stuff is that, that you're more likely to go to university nearer to home, you know, the, the, the more you come from a disadvantaged background. So I'm sure there's some twist in there that I haven't thought of, but I'm going to say yes, it correlates. Um, and I'm going to say yes as well. Um, our statistics show that um, actually from an online audience point of view, even though that it can study online when you widen participation, actually there is a bigger percentage of students coming from a closer radius to university. Well, I sort of feel obliged to say no now. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think it does correlate for, for, I mean, more or less the same reasons that Andrew and Mary have said. So the answer is there is no correlation whatsoever. Yes. R squared is a jaw-droppingly low 0.005, and P is 0.41. So there's absolutely no statistical relationship between these two measures whatsoever. So, like you lot, this surprised me a lot, but the graph, which ideally I could be showing you, is fascinating. So, um, on one hand, you've got providers like Staffordshire, Teesside, Bradford, Wolverhampton. They do fit the classic pattern of recruiting local students from low HE experience background. But you compare this to somewhere like Hull and to Leeds Beckett. So they do repeat, uh, recruit students from a low participation background, but they don't recruit locally. The other two quadrants feature the classic selective uh, providers mm. at the bottom left that don't really do either. So Oxford, Cambridge and London South Bank. 
which was a bit of a shocker. And at the bottom right, there are several London-based uh, providers who recruit locally, but not from low participation backgrounds. That's the likes of London Met, Westminster, Middlesex. Um, so I put the plot on the show page, which will be up by the time everyone hears this, and data comes from HESA and the Sutton Trust. And where the data doesn't exist... You've not plotted it! And finally, university staff have voted in support of strike action at universities across the UK. 79% of UCU members who voted backed industrial action in a ballot over changes to the university's superannuation scheme, or USS as its friends call it. Mary, what did you make of this? Well, thanks a lot for, uh, for giving me this uh, subject to lead on, because this really isn't my uh, great area of expertise. But let me try and set the scene. So basically, UCU members have voted to strike about changes, firstly to the USS pension scheme, and in a separate ballot have also voted to strike on pay, casualisation, equality and workloads. And they've voted, they've announced, sorry, Eight days of strikes at 60 universities starting on the 25th of November, which is not very far away. Um, I'm not going to spout all the numbers um, because that doesn't really work too well on the podcast, even though DK thinks it does. I'll see you later, Mary Cunnock. But basically, basically, these two results... Um, uh, uh, one for strike action, were based on lower turnouts than last time, which was, I think, spring 2018, and a smaller majority of members and a smaller number of institutions passing the threshold vote for strike action. Um, there was also a bit of polarisation in the sector, with, with basically the post-92 slightly less likely to vote uh, to strike, um, and I guess also less likely to have USS pensions, sure. of course. And the pre-92s more likely to support strike action. And, and I'm kind of assuming that that reflects um, in part staff perceptions maybe about the relative financial uh, strength of their institutions. Um, now, I don't want to go into the rights and wrongs of the UCU case or the employer's case. Um, but for me, it's kind of all eyes on what universities are going to do to mitigate the damage um, or disruption that students might experience if these strikes go ahead. Um, I think uh, this time we've, you know, we've got some previous experience mm. to go on now. Um, I think the Office of the Independent Adjudicator, the OIA, has issued some guidance. I think the Office for Students, the OFS, is, is kind of champing at the student protection bit um, and there's even, I guess now, some case law, isn't there, from last time um, uh, for students seeking compensation um, for loss of teaching time um, and disruption. So uh, for me, it's all about what happens to students when um, a strike like this might happen. Um, and I'd have to say that both for, uh, for, for everybody concerned, I really hope that there's a negotiated settlement for mm. Uh, the 25th of November, because I just think it's the last thing we need right now, given everything that's going on. But I'd love to hear other people's views from a more knowledgeable position. <laughs> Mark, let me bring you in here. Do you think universities learnt their lesson, perhaps, uh, um, last time around? Uh, how do you see it playing out this time? Well, I think we're going to have to wait wait and see and fight to answer that question. I think that um, uh, I don't think it's controversial to say that the, the last strike was very poorly handled. Um, and it, it felt like it took a long time before 
um, there was a real understanding um, of the kind of, I guess, the strength of feeling and the, the depth of dissatisfaction there was. I mean, that, that one was just on the face of it about um, the USS pension scheme. Um, this one's about um, other issues. But that last one was also about all the other issues and, and the kind of widespread dissatisfaction yeah. with the mm-hmm. kind of the direction of, of the sector um, amongst its own workforce. Uh, and I don't think that uh, the sector's leadership really grappled with that in a kind of, um, in, in an honest way or, or even in a kind of human way. Um, and, and often, you know, before it was too late, before a lot of trust got eroded um, and, a, and a lot of damage, I think, was done um, by just focusing on the policy questions and the um, the technical details of the pension scheme. Um, it kind of missed, I, I think, the um, the fact that um, increasingly there, you know, the UK higher education has a unhappy workforce. And I, I'm sorry to say that on a kind of, you know, after such an optimistic couple of days at Wonkfest, but um, uh, uh, as a, as a whole, um, I think that's what's happening. And I think that the strikes um, are an opportunity um, for, for a lot of that feeling to come to the fore. At the, on, the, on the flip side of that, though, it should be a real opportunity um, because um, these issues are really important, matter to um, uh, incredibly amount, an incredible amount to the people who work in higher education. And those people, without those people, the sector wouldn't work, wouldn't function, wouldn't happen. The students wouldn't have any teaching at all. Um, no research would get done. Um, so it seems like a, a real leadership opportunity for Vice Chancellor to say, okay, we can see there is a strong, there's a strong well of feeling here. You know, that's backed up in, although, you know, we, again, we can look at the, look at the, the, the turnout, but it's fair to say that there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who aren't happy, um, in their roles, uh, and have, and have gripes about the direction of travel of the, of the sector and, and, and the, the, I guess the settlement that, um, they have as, uh, as, as the workforce. So it's an opportunity, I think, for the sector to get ahead of that a bit, um, and for not just in striking institutions as well, because it's, it's obvious, again, learning from last time that, it won't be, the debates won't be limited just to those places. A lot of the ballots were very, very narrow, you know, only a matter mm. of two or three votes in um, the, uh, the the decision to strike or not. So still lots of people in those non-striking institutions who will want to do acts of solidarity and be, take part in, in the big conversation. Uh, and I think there's, a, there's an opportunity, as I say, for sector leadership to really engage with those conversations and not just say, oh, well, the valuation of USS is very complicated and very problematic <laughs> and yeah. defer to the pensions regulator um, and... Um, uh, and then there's obviously the, the, the question about fit, um, pay is, is, is a matter for the um, joint negotiation. But as we know, it's not about just those issues. And it does need a kind of human response uh, and one that takes into account that strong feeling, I think. Mm, indeed. Thank you so much for that. Andrew, nothing else for um, I absolutely um, believe that people should have an opportunity to um, get their views across. And I worry, though, that the people that... Um, are striking um, care so deeply about students, and actually they're the people that they're going to hurt the most. Um, a, a, sort of a slight parallel in terms of uh, instances where I've seen strikes, and I think it might have been um, in Canada, but it was the metro system, and they wanted to go on strike, um, and they actually continued to work, but they didn't take money for paying, for, none of the passengers paid to use the system. So it hurt the people uh, not, the, not the working public who needed to commute, but it actually hurt the people um, at the top. And that seemed to me a fairer way um, mm. to get their voice across. So I'm, I'm certainly uh, not making a call on whether they should or shouldn't um, strike, but I think it's good to get mm. their voice across. But I feel for the students. Jonathan, may I? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because 
you know, for those of us who are not so immersed in the intricacies of USS revaluation, um, most people looking at this on the outside would say that the university system has been incredibly generously funded in comparison to other public services over the last 10 years or so. Um, and there remain within universities as institutions a large number of people on incredibly high salaries, even leaving alone the pension. Yet at the same time, at the, at the bottom end, that early career researchers, and we talked about this earlier in the podcast, I mean, you really do see a precariat in common with uh, sort of much lower skilled service sectors. And it, it continues to stagger me that in these very, very high quality, high revenue stable, long-standing institutions at our universities, we collectively as a sector treat junior researchers pretty poorly. Uh, and they, their, their casualization, their terms of contracts, their hourly wages, the level at which they're meant to do, simply wouldn't be accepted in other areas of the education sector or other areas of public sector. It really does continue to stagger me that this that the system exists. And therefore, as someone who's not always a, a natural friend of, of UCU and a natural friend of public sector strikes, I, I do find myself having quite a large degree of sympathy with early career researchers, and I, I know I have a lot of friends who are sort of early academics, and it's an incredibly tough time. And the sort of the, the, the constant publishing push and the kind of the fact that actually the, the publishing drops off after a couple of years, so you're reapplying and none of it counts, so you have to constantly go again. It's, it's not a good human way to start careers in, in, in knowledge-intensive, highly skilled sectors. And actually, I have a huge amount of sympathy with people saying this ought not to be the way in which we treat academic staff. Brilliant, thank you. Do you want to come back in on that? Um, I just, say, just really quickly, but um, you know, I mentioned before John Kingham saying we've got to be serious about the people as mm. well. But also, do you remember Sue Rigby, Vice Chancellor of Bath Spa, in the TEF session? And she said something like, "The ref has kind of ripped up the fabric of the higher education sector by stripping away or, or, or separating, you know, the scholarly academic research bit from the teaching bit, so that all the researchers were kind of superstars for their ref." Um, returns and five stars and so on and the, the teaching minions I think she called them were the ones on the kind of zero hour contracts mm. and I think you know Mark's point that um, this is a sector that does have a very angry staff and that you know that's where we're seeing this consequence which I think is really unfortunate. So that is about it for this week to find out more about anything we've discussed today you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show in your favourite podcast directory. Or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on this show, then please do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our wonderful guests, Andrea, John... So thanks again to our guests, Andrea, Jonathan, Mary and Mark. To everyone at Team Wonky for making not only this show possible, but the festival happen. And of course, for you in the audience, the same right to the end. And everyone who's listening right to the end. And until next week, stay wonky. I think I think the, the podcast I did yesterday was a lot more organised. <laughs> <laughs> Leave that in. Can that be the cold open at the start of the podcast? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.